worship team we have, right? Give it up for them. So, for those of you that know me a little well, uh, I'm kind of an old soul when it comes to the old music and stuff. So they were they were drawn even during practice. I kind of walked from the office in here because I could hear it. They were bringing out the old Baptocostal in me. So I'm a good old Baptist boy raised that way. But every now and then, you know, I get a little get a little movement in the hips or whatnot. But uh, man, it's just it's good, right? Because you've got you've got so few people up here and some keys, and yet I think one of the most beautiful sounds in the world in worship is the voices of the people of God. So, all right, so, for those of you that are new here, you should have received one of these when you came in, and if you're not new, you should have got one anyway, right? So, you can do a couple of different things. We invite you to text that number up there so that we can connect with you. We're excited that you're here. You know, nobody is, we don't live in a time and day where your, your grandma or great-grandma or grandparents in general will scold you for not showing up on a Sunday morning service. Nobody's dragging you here by your ear like they did when I was a kid. And uh, we don't have any Bibles in the backseat of the chairs for you to be smacked in the head with or hymnals. So you chose of your own volition to be here, and we're grateful for that. And we just want to love you well. We just want to know your story, and we just want to connect with you. So either text the number that you saw up there a moment ago, or inside your worship guide, there's a little perforated sheet called a connection card. We're not going to drive you crazy. Look, we are a respecter of your time. Uh, we just want to help you wherever you're at, be on that journey, enter into that space with you, and get to know you a little better, okay? So, a couple of things. Who in here went to the marriage conference this weekend? Man, wasn't it good? Wasn't it so fun? It really was. We had a good time. Uh, you know, uh, Trent uh, kind of set the mood for us. You know, as, uh, as they joked with, they thought I was going to say something. Uh, they played some pagan romance music. But, because uh, they think I'm that guy, I don't know why. Um, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's the old soul in me, who knows. But I, I certainly didn't think that we had to do old rugged cross or anything in a marriage conference, all right? So they can cut me a little bit of slack. So uh, just before we kick off here, though, hey, the marriage conference was great. It really was. It was wonderful. We had lots of laughs. Uh, we learned a thing or two about body heat because it was really cold sometimes. So all of us came bundled up like it was February. But it was great, we really did. And if you think that you don't need to invest in your marriage, if you think you're in a good spot, you're wrong, because marriage is a continual investment. And it blessed us deeply. So if you get a chance, next time that comes around, please, please, please make it a priority. It's not saying there's something wrong with your marriage to attend. It's simply saying that I value my spouse enough to continually invest in my marriage, okay? So, of course, they mentioned the event tonight. And then we have VBS volunteer signups. And I'm gonna talk about something later on in this message that I think ties well into that. Um, a lot of our acts of service, I don't think we see the big picture sometimes. I think we see the immediate effect, and that's typical for most of us, right? But we don't see the big gospel picture there. So, um, been a little while since I've been up here. For those of you that know the story, uh, this is the first time that I have delivered a message since my mother went to be with the Lord. And um, funny thing is, God has been ministering to us through all of you, through this church, through this family, and through his word. And all I could think about before I came up here was, you know, she used to get on our Facebook feed a lot of times and talk about, hey, good morning from Arizona. And I kept telling her every day, I would call her like clockwork after the second service on the way home. I'd say, you need to be in a church. Like, I'm glad you're watching, but I do in a physical church among the body of believers because that's nice, but, you know, and for those of you that are watching online, we're so glad that you're here. Don't think that I'm telling you to stop, okay? For, that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. But look, it's, it's not a one-for-one. One. 
There's nothing quite like being in the midst of God's people and worshiping with them, right? Because you remember when we had that brief shutdown? And, and I'm glad it was brief. I love being a rebel, you know, and they're like, you can't have church. We will have church. So, but uh, we, when we shut down for a little bit, we were watching online. Remember how that worship was? One or two ways. It could be kind of weird, and you're like, okay. Or if you, know, if you got your family there, and maybe they sound pretty good, and they sing. Maybe you've got that gospel quartet going on. I don't know. But it's not the same. It's not the same. And I just want you guys to know that, that we still feel your prayers. We still feel your love. Um, this is a season of trial for us, of course, and we will all go through that journey. But just the thought that came to mind when I was sitting there was the last message that I preached, you know what my mother's comment was, and it wasn't even to me. You know, moms are always like, hey, you did great. It could have been the worst thing in the world. You did great. Well, my mom is an incredibly honest woman sometimes, and she tells my wife, I don't really think that was his great message. I was like, the last one. The last one she ever heard me deliver this side of eternity, right? Because there's no need to preach in heaven. Um, so... Not only am I a little frustrated that that was how she went out, but I'm a little envious because she's with her king in glory. So praise God for that, right? So let's, get, let's, let's jump in here, right? So we're, we're doing this series in the, in the book of Hebrews, and man, has it been good. Uh, Pastor Josh has just been rocking and rolling. He was so gracious last month when I was supposed to preach to go ahead and pick that up for me and, and, and come alongside closer than a brother and uh, just love me well in that season. I mean, we're talking a couple weeks removed. I, I don't know how that would have happened. You know what I mean? So uh, he's been patient. He's been gracious, and they've loved us so well. All of you have loved us so well, so thank you. Um, we're kind of in this block of teaching in Hebrews, if you will. Go to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be in the first 10 verses this morning. As I was working through this text, I thought, the first 10 voices, verses are so connected to the next section of chapter 9, I was like, I was wrestling with this, because if you ever read a passage in Scripture and you're like, why do I need to know this, you know? And I understand the theological significance and stuff like that. I mean, I paid too much money to not understand some of it. But I'm going, this is kind of a hard passage to deal with because it's talking about the old temple. It's talking about the old covenant, right? So it's very difficult, but um, as I was studying for this and the Lord was ministering to me and uh, it, it showing me some stuff in his word, I thought, you know what, this is really good. It's really, all God's word's good, right? But you know, how many of you, you know, get to Leviticus in your reading plan and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to get through it someday. Someday never comes, but that's okay. All right, so check it out. So if you're with me, we're going to read the word. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations thus have been made. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes and but he once a year not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And this is the word of God this morning. Now, those of you that are following along, you're going, what? 
Because I kind of did that, right? I'm taught to deal with this stuff, but I kind of did. I was like, okay, Aaron's staff that butted. Like, what does that have to do with me? You know, you do stuff like that. Just be, I'm just honest with you, right? I think we all do it. Some of us will jump right to verse 11 and be like, but Jesus. <laughs> and you should. You should in many senses. But we're talking about the superior priestly ministry, the superior tabernacle of Jesus Christ. And that starts in chapter 8, verse 1, and goes all the way through chapter 10, 18. So there are sections that are connected across the board. But before I get, because it came to my mind, let's do our memory verse. How is that working for everybody? I think it's been remarkable. I think it has been so good. I love that my kids are competitive. What'd you say? Oh, gosh, that's not very godly. No, I love it because like, I'm gonna memorize it faster than you. And of course, it's usually my daughter. Love my son. Daughter's super, super into it. And, uh, but so we have it in Romans 14, 19. As a church, so let us do all we can to live in peace. And let us work hard to build up one another. Man, I say, y'all have built me up in this season. I, these are so perfect in God's sovereignty and God's providence. Every single month has blessed me with these memory verses, and I hope it has for you too. So if you're not doing it, man, get on board because it'll work. It's great. It's fun. It's a good way to memorize scripture. It's a good time to do family worship, which is something we don't do very often anymore. It's powerful. Five minutes, y'all. Five minutes. Just do it at night. Do it in the morning. Whatever works best for you. So let's jump in, all right? We're talking about this tabernacle and all these fun details. So in verses one through five in Hebrews nine, it says again, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, right? So here's the thing. We know this to be true, what? That God is holy, right? So when um, some of my friends that I happen to work here at this church give me a hard time sometimes about certain things that we sing or do, and I give them a hard time, and I go, well, wait a minute, if we say that actually, like if we want fire to fall, we'll die, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> God is holy. <laughs> so, so I'm a word guy, you know? So, so here's the thing. This is a place of holiness because why? Because God is there. Look with me. If you, if you want to jump around, that's fine. I have a lot of verses to go through the day. Totally cool. Just stay where you're at. Um, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses Moses, and what did God say? And he said, here I, Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Remember the burning bush story we learned about in Sunday school back in the day when we used to do that, right? Uh, maybe some of our, our kiddos, of course, I know our kiddos are learning about that as well. I'm not in this immediate moment, but I've heard the story. Most of us are familiar. Was the bush in itself holy? No. What made it holy is that God was in this place. You see, wherever God is, is in fact holy because he himself is holy. We're distinct in that sense. We're distinct in that sense. So my first point this morning is this. What was once regulated to a specific place is now experienced in spirit and in truth. We have to really wrap our minds around this because we have all these details for a reason. How's everybody's Bible plan going? You don't have to show your hand, right? Some of you are doing great, you're in the grind, you got a rhythm. Some of you are like, I tried, I'll start again next year. 
And I hope that's not the case. I hope that you're able to kind of pick yourself up and say, you know what, I'm gonna keep working at this because I promise you it'll be worth it. But like I joked about earlier, it's true. Most of the time when we get to the book of Leviticus or the second half of Exodus, we're like, this is awful. This is awful. Or if you're a New Testament person, you start off in Matthew and you get all this genealogy and you're like, oh, I thought this was about baby Jesus. And it's, it's, it's kind of, some people have told me, they're like, oh, it's kind of miserable, I don't like it. And you know, how many times do you hear people preach out of the book of Leviticus? How many messages have you heard on Leviticus? Yeah, yeah. Even pastors are like, I don't know if this person's cow dies and then I have recompense for this and it's not really my cow or it was an accident. It becomes a whole mess because you're trying to work through it, right? But here's what we need to understand is the book of Leviticus, specifically whole Bible, but Leviticus is about worship. It is prescriptions for worshiping God. Why do we need that? Because God is holy and God will not be worshiped in any such way as we choose so, now we have a lot of Christian liberty and freedom nowadays, of course, absolutely, right? But you have some other notations here in Exodus 25 when he talks about how things will be built. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make out of it modeling of gold around it. Exodus 25, 31. You shall make a lampstand of what? Pure gold. Moreover, you shall make a tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Exodus 26, verses 1, right? So what do we see here? God is giving very detailed and specific commands on how he wants the people of old to worship him. What is this place that God is going to inhabit? How is it going to be built? How is it going to be structured? What are you going to use? What is the size and dimensions And we just kind of gloss over that sometimes. But here's the thing. The people of God are to be what? Set apart from the nations around them, right? You know, if you were to look historically, you would find other temples. You would find some similarities in how the temple was structured or how how the the, the tent of meeting was structured back then. But the one thing you would not find in contrast to the pagan cultures is that pagan cultures in their temples had a place for the God to like a bed, like someplace to lay down because they need to come down and do that. No, you cannot contain God in such a way. You see, our God is, is God. He is not something that's made with human hands. He's not something that we fabricate with our imaginations. Although, if we're honest, in today's culture, many people have built a God in their own image, have they not? And so I wanna share a couple of, uh, of things here. When we look at this, and I'm not trying to over-allegorize the passage, right? But here's what we need to understand. These items that are specifically listed in here that they're referring to, they do carry with them some meaning, right? So Aaron's staff represented how God kept people alive in the wilderness and his choosing of Aaron for the priesthood in number 17. The tablets were a reminder of what? God's covenant and their, what? Obligation to keep it, of which they, what? Failed, right? The golden urn holding manna was a reminder of God's sustaining care in the wilderness for 40 years. You find that in Exodus 16. The burning incense was associated with the big event, the Day of Atonement, as taught in Leviticus 16. And of course, the cherubim. Where do we see the cherubim first appear in Scripture? Genesis 3, right? To guard the garden. These beings, these heavenly, otherworldly beings. So we go through all that, and here's what I want to point out to you. This is why I think this is so important. Again, it reminds us of the holiness of who God is. So you will find an interesting story in Leviticus. If you can grind all the way to chapter 10, all right, I know it might be hard. You get there and you hear this story about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. And they decided that they were going to do whatever they wanted to do, right? 
and you're gonna think this sounds a little harsh in 2021, God killed them. They offered strange fire and they died. And it talks about Aaron's reactions just like, I just keep on trucking. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> really? <laughs> I, would, I would be profoundly upset. But God had given a prescribed way to which they would approach him because God is holy and we are not. And if we enter into that space with God and his holiness, we too will die, right? That's how that worked. And God described that to them. We find elsewhere, if you've ever read the story of Uzzah in 1 Chronicles 13 or 2 Samuel 6, they're carrying the ark and it starts to slip. Now, I asked the pastor this question years ago, and I, I was not satisfied with the answer. It wasn't personal. I just wasn't satisfied with the answer because I don't know if he knew how to handle it either because it's weird, right? Uzzah reaches out to what? Catch it so it doesn't fall. What happens? He dies. He dies. And you're like, Lord, he was just trying to do something kind. He didn't want it to fall. He didn't want it to fall on the dirt. Here's the presumption. Uzzah thought that he was cleaner than the dirt of the ground. He's a sinner. It would have been far better for it to fall to the dirt than Uzzah to catch it. That's why he died. David was angry about it. I would have been too. I would have been too. It says that uh, in, the, in a verse in particular, it says, and when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark for the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. Died <laughs> there before God. And you go, what God is this? This is the same God that was not caught off guard by sin in the garden that was gonna send a son for you and me. Same God, same God. We find here kind of the big grand culmination of this, right? In John 4, as Pastor Joshua spoke about a, last week or a couple weeks ago, but it's so good because it matters. It says, the woman said to him in John 4, 19, 24, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship now what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we need to look in the Old Testament moments like that in light of understanding, has God's holiness changed? Absolutely not. Must there be separation between the unholy and the holy? Absolutely. But Jesus has come. Jesus has come, and that changes things for you and I. Louis Burkhoff says this about God. He is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and is exalted above them in infinite majesty. Have you ever taken time to do that? I know it's incomprehensible for us, but have you ever tried to imagine, man, this is, this is my God? This is my God that I get to worship. And you're in a valley in life or you're on the mountaintops. My God is the God that speaks things into existence. And this same God, for some odd reason that I will never know, cares enough for me that he sent his son to die. Cares enough for me that he knew that I couldn't work or operate within the parameters of having to go to a temple, so he says, in spirit and in truth. You don't have to come to a certain place, right? We all know that. We are the church. If you're in Christ, you are the church. Which brings me to my second point this morning. We no longer need mediated access to God. 
Christ has secured our right to enter. In Hebrews 9, 6 through 7, you see this. It says, these preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for what? The unintentional sins of the people. That's a funny one, because we have what we call sins of commission. You know it's wrong, you do it. Sins of omission, you don't act like you should. And then we kind of have these, these, these sins that's going on here that you're talking about where you didn't even know. You didn't know. And yet they had to offer that as well. Can you imagine the eagerness each year? Day of Atonement's coming, Yom Kippur, right? And they go, all right, this is it. This is it. We're cleaning up our act. It's coming. The big day's coming. Kind of look at it's akin, I don't want to say theologically, right? But just, you know when we get excited and we look to Easter, right? Okay? So, so similar thing. Like, they're pumped. They're like, okay, a lot of work goes into this, though. Lots of work is going into this. And they only get to enter this sacred space once a year, and the most holy is the high priest. He's the only one that can do it. Now, they're doing stuff throughout the year, and they're offering sacrifices, but he can't even go there until he gets clean. There is ritualistic bathing there's a shedding of blood. There's pronouncement of the sin on another offering and sending it into the wilderness. Like, it's very detailed. It's very, very detailed. You know, Leviticus 17, it talks about, you know, the life is in the blood. So that was the necessity of blood, which we find later, whose blood was shed for our remission of sins? Jesus Christ, right? But once a year. So they got all this eagerness. They're doing all this kind of stuff. And this is what it tells us. Man just couldn't approach God with any kind of flippancy. They couldn't. They couldn't. That's why I share that story with Nadab and Abihu. They're the sons of Aaron, and they decided to do things their own way, and God struck them down. During this time, there was a separation between God and man. The veil was there. The veil, excuse me, the veil still existed. It still operated as it should. And these people, if they're like us, and I believe they are in many ways, I, I bet they're future-oriented. What I mean by that is we're always looking to New year, new me, new year, right? A couple of years ago, I made the comment and everybody gave me all kinds of grief on Facebook about New Year's resolutions because I don't like them. I don't like them because I think that if you predicate your goals on a singular day in the year, you're setting yourself up for failure. I tell people all the time, that's why we encourage when people pray, we say, if somebody says, pray for me, do it now. Do it now because you'll forget. I forget, right? Why not today? If you have a goal, do it today. Who cares what the number on the calendar says, right? Does it matter? Not really. And I'll get some flack for saying New Year's resolutions again. I already see the looks. Can't believe he said that. The only future orientation that you and I should have is the return of our king. That should be where we're at. Our minds should be fixed on that truth that Jesus is coming back. That the king of glory is coming back to save and redeem and consummate his kingdom. That if we live long enough, maybe we will be in that moment and we get to see him coming on the clouds and if we're not, because we're in Christ, we will one day be in his presence. To be absent in body, to be present with the Lord Jesus. But you wanna be anywhere else? So much pain, heartache, sickness, sin infects everything. Everything. Even what we do here, we are sinners among sinners in a broken world. But Jesus makes a way. 
He makes a way. You know, <laughs> thankfully it's past, and if you're one of these, I apologize in advance, but we have this little, we, we call it creasters, right? So if you come to church on Christmas and Easter, please don't leave nothing mean on Facebook, but if that's you. But let's just be real, we're honest, right? But you look forward to those two days out of the whole year. You're so future-oriented to those two days, and you miss the other Sundays, the other events. You miss the point. You miss the whole point. And sometimes I find myself frustrated on Easter because we put so much energy into it, and I go, wait a minute. Shouldn't every Sunday be a celebration like this? Isn't our king still risen? Isn't he still ruling and reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father? Isn't he advocating for you and I? Has anything changed? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Sunday mornings should be cause for celebration and praise. And sometimes, and I know this very closely as of recent, sometimes you praise God through tears. Sometimes you lift up your hands and surrender through tears and praising the King of glory. Kevin DeYoung says this, we can stop pleading with God to show us the future and start living and obeying like we are confident that he holds it. See, we don't find ourselves in that particular space anymore like the Israelites did, but are looking to this day of atonement to be cleaned again because it is finished. It is finished. That is a powerful truth. He's not saying it's kind of finished or you guys have got a clean slate that you can dirty up again. No, he is saying I've paid for it and I have covered them with my robes of righteousness. If you are in Christ, that's your story. That is what is true. He has done the work for you and I. Don't live so future-oriented on a particular day, holiday, or season that you miss an opportunity to glorify him by loving somebody through the gospel today. This isn't even in my notes, but I think it's important, right? We don't look to a day of atonement because we don't need it anymore because Christ has done what? It's perfectly atoned for our sins. But I would caution and I would encourage you to consider the day while you have it. We assume, I think, too much that we have so much time. And some, we miss the urgency of the gospel. We shouldn't be going about saying, the day of atonement is coming. We should say, Christ saves sinners. Put your faith in this king. Put your faith in him and he will ransom you. He will rescue you. The idea is that next Sunday we'll all gather again. Who knows, right? That's hard to think about. But who knows? Don't be so future-minded that you're not any good today. Gospel matters. This foreshadowing of the atonement to come has came in Jesus Christ. And so now you and I... <laughs> And I love, for, I guess you just like the stuff where you beat yourself in the scripture, right? But I'm like, God, I'm dust. And you loved me. And now you're telling me that this high priest could not enter this sacred space but once a year and without being cleansed. You're telling me because of Jesus Christ that I can go to my father anytime? That I don't have to do ritualistic washing or bathing or have to bleed something out, that I can go anytime, anywhere, any place. 
Do you see the radical nature of the change? We don't need a high priest anymore. Some of us will come to service thinking that we're checking the box because it's culturally expedient to be in church in the Bible Belt. But guess what? That's losing social credibility, isn't it? It used to be like, oh, they don't go to church. Now it's like, oh, you go to church? It's very different. It's very different than what it used to be. And we don't even blink. But now you and I get, we don't need a high priest. You know, as pastors, and I know Pastor Josh would, uh, would certainly agree, whenever we go somewhere and there's crowds, people always want us to pray. And I'm like, we don't have no magic prayers. <laughs> we don't, we don't. But the assumption is, oh, we'll just let the pastor pray because they're holy. No, man, I'm working through some stuff too, all right? So, and so is Pastor Josh. Yeah, 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 I got you. (laughs) But we are. We're just called to do this. But we're still working through things. God is still working on us. But you have the same access as I do to pray to God because of Jesus Christ. You don't need somebody to be a go-between for you. You are God's holy people, chosen and dearly loved. Right? No more No more mediator, no more high priest. And I tell you what, if you've ever come from a Roman Catholic background, that'll set you free. Because you'll feel like you have to go see somebody that's got the little little screen door in the booth and be like, well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. Why go to the cheap imitation? Go to to God. Go to the Father. Don't settle for for a fake. It's a fake now. Don't settle for it. If I can go to the Lord myself, I don't need to go to a high priest. I don't need to go to a priest or a father or a cardinal. That's freeing. Because no matter where you are, God is with you then. And my third point is this. And this is the big one. The temple offering dealt only with the external. Christ's perfect offering deals with the internal, our hearts. Let's look back at verses 8 and 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed to the time of what? Reformation. I'm not talking about a Protestant Reformation. Y'all calm down. Reformation in general. Things are changed. Things have changed, right? In Mark 15 and in Matthew 27, we see two quotes that I want to use here. From the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And in Matthew 27, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Everything's changed. Everything's changed. The reason that they had to go back year after year on the Day of Atonement and offer sacrifices, the reason that they had to continually do things throughout the year, even in the first portion, was because it was insufficient. It was insufficient. They had to keep doing it. So you'd mess up. Just just, just imagine being that guy where the Day of Atonement just happened, everything is good, and then You know, you stub your toe because you're in these little sandals on a rock or something, and who knows what comes out? I don't know what they would say back then, but who knows? Now you sin. 
well, wait for the next day of atonement, a whole nother year. No, no. You see, because it's an external thing that's taking place here. And yet we find in Jeremiah 31, what? The heart of stone is gone and he will give you a heart of flesh. God has given us a new nature. We're a new creation. Things are different now. And Josh has is, is done it so well and I think it's so needed to hear a lot of times, man, if you say you're in Christ and nothing's changed, then let's talk. If you don't have a new nature and a new heart and a new hunger for God's word and God's people, let's talk. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm just saying, let's have a conversation because that's what takes place. Whether gradual or sometimes you hear them stories from people who are like, man, I was selling drugs on the street one minute and then five minutes later, God changed my life and never picked it up again. And praise be to God for that, right? Because God is not limited by our inability. Others are like, I've been walking with the Lord for a while and I've just been kind of going at a really slow place and that's okay. That's okay. But if you found yourself saying, I'm a Christian and nothing has changed, brother, sister, I caution you, come have a conversation with one of us. We're not here to be like, hey, I don't think you are. I'm not trying to do that at all. I'm just simply saying like, let's walk side by side together. Let's figure out what's going on. Let's know your heart because he does. He knows our hearts. The new covenant has come because of Jesus Christ. The reformation has taken place. We're no longer bound to the old covenant. You imagine each Sunday having to come up here to an altar and doing all kinds of wild stuff? Some of y'all would not come. Some of y'all would not come. You'd be like, that's just too much work. And it, Jesus goes, you know what? I know that these hard-headed, stiff-necked people will continually fail again and again and again. Do you think for a moment that the sin in the garden caught God off guard? No, no. God is not reacting to anything. The plan was in motion before time began to send his son for us. And because of what he has done, it's changed everything. Our hearts have changed. And as I get ready to close, this is what I was alluding to earlier we do things like the marriage conference or we sign up for a life group or we serve on a team. But I wanna encourage you something. It's been burdening me lately, actually, is, and maybe it doesn't bother you. Maybe you think about this all the time. When we are doing those things, when we are serving God's people in that way, never lose sight of the bigger picture. What I mean is sometimes I think we can fall into the groove of serving because we say, oh, well, man, people need help. Never lose sight of the bigger picture. What are we trying to show people? The gospel. We're trying to show people the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If we stop doing that and we become so performance driven, what are we doing? We're wasting our time. May look good, may sound good, may fill seats. But if we're not given the greatest news that's ever been given, that Jesus Christ came for sinners, we're not thinking about the gospel. If we're not showing up expecting that God is gonna move and that God is gonna call us to some things sometimes that are uncomfortable, sometimes they're painful, but it's not gonna look like that cross. It's not gonna look like carrying the weight of the sins of people because he's paid for it. He's paid for it. Joel Beek says this, God's love is not a fickle passion. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. Yet his love is merciful to the weak and vulnerable. I'll be totally honest with you. This past month and a half, many of you know, has been really, really hard. 
Some days are great. Some days are really difficult. But God is merciful. Enters into my human weakness when I struggle and says, son, I love you. I love you. And he doesn't just stop there where you're like some ethereal thing. He puts people around us, all of you, that love us well, that walk with us in that journey. And why? Why do we do that? We all have our quirks and differences, right? Some of y'all sitting here right now going, hey, that person in that pew back there, I don't even like them. Why do we do it anyway, though? Because the gospel, because Christ loved us, stiff-necked sinners, rebellious children of wrath, and bought us with his blood. And now we're family. We're not family because anything you or I did, we're family because of what? Because of what he did. So we don't need that kind of temple anymore. We offer our bodies, as Pastor Josh said last week, as a living sacrifice. We consider others greater than ourselves. We love well. We don't do it perfectly, but he has. And he walks with us all the days of our lives to help us, even when it's hard, and sometimes when we're clouded at the high mountaintop victories, right?